This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Boosting GM Spirits. Hal Mangold on Art Direction. Hal Mangold on Layout. And my Toronto Film Fest Roundup. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Canon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. Patreon backer Jesse Morgan asks Ken and Robin, My DM is great, but he can occasionally fall into a campaign-ending funk. Could you give some suggestions on how players can help their DM stay motivated? What a lovely question from Jesse Morgan, who has got stars in their crown in heaven, I think. Yes, that's an awesome question, because we so often, uh, both in this podcast and on panels, and also all of our colleagues, uh, give a lot of advice to GMs on how to make a game better. But in fact, guess what? It's also the player's responsibility to make your game better. And we spend a lot less time talking about that. You can't just have one player and expect the game to turn out well. Hey, other White Sox. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. And so, uh, and I, I like this question because it doesn't actually identify what it is that causes the campaign ending funk. And so that will allow us to uh, come up with a bunch of different possible answers for that. One of which will apply uh, in this case, but uh, others of which will apply to other people who have this problem. And GM motivation, uh, I think, is an under-discussed issue. And one of the things about that is, of course, that there is a disparity of work involved in that if you are the uh, GM, you're expected to uh, do whatever prep your system demands, which uh, sometimes is a lot and sometimes is a little, and also to be very present for everyone in the room and to uh, balance everybody else's tastes according to the Robin Laws system of making games great. And that can be tough. So, uh, Ken, do you have a, a starter first suggestion for how you would go about identifying why your uh, GM gets dispirited in the middle and uh, lets things lapse without going to the big conclusion that everybody is hoping for? Well, I'm not sure that diagnosing the GM is as important as curing the 
symptoms or fixing the problem, whatever it is. Well, in order to fix the symptoms, you have to figure out why it is, right? Because well, I mean, you can you can look at the you can look at the game, say, and you can say that the GM seems to be uh, lagging in you know prep for big combats. And it's like, well, maybe they're not enjoying that. So maybe we should volunteer to crank out a bunch of, you know, killable NPCs if, you know, that's one of the things that is a, a big problem in the in the game. I, I remember running a 3.0 D&D game, and uh, I was very much dispirited by having to come up with encounters for that. And so my buddy, uh, one of my players, or actually I think two of my players sort of sat down with the, with the I don't know if it was the software or just with their 13 year old selves and built out about 8 million different, uh, drop in a bowl fights. And so I had those and I could tweak them a little bit, uh, so they wouldn't be familiar and then just drop them in, but I didn't have to do that amount of work. So I guess you can begin by looking and saying, you know, not, and this is perhaps going to sound invidious, but you say, what's the part that they don't seem to be doing that I would expect the GM to be do if they were not in a funk. And then see if there's a way you could do that for yourself. And again, if it's balancing attention to other players in the Robin Law system, part of your job as a player, I think, anyway, is to make sure that everyone at the table is part of the story you're telling. And maybe you do a little bit of that. Maybe you turn to the the, the quiet guy who, because you're a player, you're maybe more attuned to the fact that they're quiet because I'm always talking as opposed to they're quiet because they're uh, more observing types. And you say, hey, uh, Chet. Um, why don't you, um, uh, why don't, why don't your thief, uh, try and do something like this? Cause I'll bet he'd be awesome at it. Or, you know, Hey, Ginger, why don't you talk down the, um, uh, the guards? Uh, because I think if we fight them, it'll make too much noise. So maybe we can try a more subtle way to get, uh, into the facility rather than, um, just immediately start shooting everyone. And as a player, start thinking about ways to mix stuff up amongst roles at the table. And that will also, of course, improve your game because you're mixing stuff up tactically, which means it's not a constant series of, well, we've figured out that the combo of silent sniper rifle and dum-dum ammunition is the best thing in the world. And we're just never going to not use that. And, oh, I don't know why my game suddenly got boring. So it's up to you, the player, to maybe change it up a little bit as well. Yeah, I think what you're uh, zooming in on is the idea that you, as the concerned player, can be the GM's silent partner, which is very different than the GM's backseat driver. Right. So rather it's literally than... literally the opposite. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and so uh, uh, just sort of as a subtle co-navigator, look at what seems to be stressing your GM out and figuring out what can I do to have that happen less. So as you suggest, uh, if that happens in the prep phase, you can offer to do some of the prep. If it is the actual running of the game that is becoming um, stressful or monotonous, you can then uh, step in and try to balance some of the personalities at the table. It may be that if you sit back and look at why the GM becomes discouraged, maybe there's another player in the group who is the undermining factor, who uh, is argumentative or uh, is always rejecting whatever premise the uh, GM puts in front of them or uh, is in one sense or another, uh, responsible for dysfunctional play. And you don't have the power to unilaterally kick them out of the group, uh, although perhaps we could get You might if later. it's in your house. <laughs> if, yeah, right. Well, let, let's put a pin in that and come back to that idea yeah. later. But you can, uh, assuming you know a, a lesser degree of dysfunction, you can sort of try and act as the buffer for the GM in, in that. And so uh, you know, if you've got someone who wants to argue uh, the rules a lot during play and the GM is for whatever reason not using the 
uh, let them talk for 90 seconds, make a ruling, and then argue afterwards method. If they're not doing that, you can sort of step in and kind of suggest that. Like, why don't we just make this a provisional ruling and we'll talk about the rules later and try and uh, sort of step in as kind of a verbal traffic cop, as it were. Um, if you discover that, what if you're the underminer? Well, <laughs> yes. the answer well, is stop what you're doing. Yes. <laughs> Don't do that, as the man says. Yeah, the, um, the, you know, uh, we, we, we hesitate to ask people to come to true self knowledge at a role playing game table. That, again, <laughs> or, or in any, any, at, really life. anywhere. That's just dispiriting regardless. But you, um, uh, but you, you, what you don't need to do is, I mean, if, if the problem is the game is not working and you're looking at the GM and you think maybe the game is not working for the GM for some reason, nine times out of 10, it is going to be something the players do. It's not going to be phases of the moon or whatever. It might just be that the GM is one of those people who really loves coming up with ideas, but hates follow through. In which case, maybe the suggestion that you want to make is let's run a bunch of shorts and maybe we can either be time guys like in time watch or in, um, GURPS, uh, or in Savage Worlds, and we just bop around through a bunch of different universes, so you get all the fun part you like of making up a universe, but none of the part you hate of saying, oh, I don't know what happens next. It's so boring. I want to do another universe. And maybe that can be fun for a while, or maybe you can offer to shoulder a little more of the narrative burden so that um, the GM is running something, and you're like, hey, players, let's all be really proactive. Instead of waiting for the GM to fill our sandbox up with tiny dinosaurs, yes. let's announce that what we're going to do uh, to help the GM out is we're going to go off and find story in this spot and make the GM come up with ideas because that's the part that they like as opposed to the part where they have to toss endless amounts of chum to us to wait and see what we snap at with our dolphin-like jaws. Yeah, show up, uh, and this is a thing I always say, as a player, show up with an idea in mind of where to lead everybody else so that the GM doesn't have to lead everybody somewhere. Now, it may be that other people come up with something, and so you have to be prepared to um, set your idea aside if someone else wants to step up because you don't want to be the dominating player who's always grabbing the spotlight, but there has to be some sort of forward momentum, some movement, so that you can sort of appoint yourself as a person who has an idea ahead of time of what the movement can be if none of the other players have something to, to head toward. And because that's a very dispiriting as a GM is if you have created a sandbox expectation is to say, okay, now what do you want to do? And then everybody else looks at their shoes and goes, well, I don't know, or, or they come up with, well, I thought I'd go to my lab by myself and study for, you know, uh, no, come up with an, a cool active thing that you can do that puts yourself in jeopardy that makes uh, fun happen. Pretend the word adventure is somewhere in adventure role-playing and see what happens. Right. Uh, another, I think, reason that GMs can become dispirited is that there is a, they get partway into a campaign and that their preconceptions of what their campaign tone and style were going to be have gone away. That you as players have taken it the game in a different direction they had hoped for, which generally is a good thing. But if the GM wants to have something that is uh, different in style and tone than the last thing she did, and everybody at the table just sort of habitually drags the play style back to their default play style, and you also complain about the fact that your default play style has then come up. <laughs> yes. Ideally, try not to complain about problems you cause. That's just good life advice. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, once again, a, a note of broader application that people disregard in, in actual life. Um, so I guess this is Ask Ken and Robin about uh, gaming and life, this, this segment. But the 
thing there to do is is to either come to collective self-awareness about, <laughs> you know, we just have this style that we prefer so that, you know, every game that we play is going to become a pulp game. And so if the GM wants to run a, a gritty dust style John Le Carre Knights Black Agents and you all sign off on that for two episodes and then you make it go weird and pulpy again, you probably have an idea of what's gone wrong. So the solution to that is either everybody agree that this is where it's going to go. So let's accept that, you know, or try and embrace a new play style or try to embrace a new uh, play style and to meet the GM halfway. Uh, the, I think harder nut to crack in that regard is that I think also sometimes uh, the GM will come to the table and she will have a conception of where exactly she wants the story to go uh, and is more of an author type GM than a improvisational GM who wants a co-creation. Uh, and we generally think of that as poor GMing. And so, well, I mean, it's certainly poor GMing if it results in bad play, which is the right. premise of the question. Yes. I mean, as long as everyone's having a good time, the question doesn't pertain because no one writes in and says, my DM is great, but he can occasionally tell a really great story that we're raptured by. What do we do? Yes. <laughs> Answer, stay raptured. <laughs> but here, the, the GM is, become, is becoming unraptured with the story. Exactly. Because you've, uh, you know, the big epic with the dragons that uh, she had in mind uh, you've gone off to to fight the uh, the underwater demons, and the the direction has been lost. And and uh, another another more, fireproof cloak. This is the worst treasure ever under the sea. Right. And so part of it made, and that's I guess a, an example of what we're already talking about of a broader thing of the players fighting back against the thing that the uh, GM does well or aspires to do well, and that the bigger answer to this is always think more about what it is that causes your GM to have fun at the table and, you know, throw her a bone every so often, you know, accept the epic sweep of the narrative if it's supposed to have an epically sweeping narrative. And and also pre-communication is good because if, you know, the GM comes to the table and she's got a big pile of books about dragons and a bunch of dragon miniatures and a GM screen covered in dragons and the big book of dragons and GURPS <laughs> dragons and dragon lance and everything else. And your first instinct is let's all go under the sea and fight Sahuagin. What you may want to have done before you even started rolling up dice or rolling up characters is talk to the GM and say, do you want us to go fight a lot of dragons in this adventure? Because, you know, Sandy has been fighting dragons on her Tuesday game all the time, and she's really tired of it. So what can we do about that? And the GM's like, oh, okay, I get it. Sandy, um, we can make a, we can make a special thing. And, and every couple of sessions we'll do high politics in the court of the dragon fighting king, but there won't be any dragon fighting that day. And Sandy can, can have fun. And then, uh, I'll just move the dragons forward so you can do shorter, uh, you know, shorter ad wilderness adventures before we get to the awesome dragon part. And, you know, again, like you, like you would do if the GM and you come and you're not sure that something's going to work for your table, you maybe ask them and say, I would like to get, run a game of gritty John Le Carre style, uh, nice black agents as opposed to, uh, late Roger Moore, James Bond, which is all you people seem to want to do. And then you guys agree. Oh, okay. I get it. That is a, a thing we'd like to do or nope. We find that. Uh, tiresome and scary, and we really do like uh, blowing up things and kissing Jane Seymour. And you have to sort of pre-negotiate a campaign at the beginning a lot of times anyway, so maybe the answer is to pre-negotiate it during the campaign if you notice that there seem to be a lot of dragons around for all these underwater adventures we're having. Now, 
the question does stipulate a great GM. Yes. And so uh, what people who are very talented at doing things, a uh, subsection of them have self-confidence problems and come uh, fall into self-doubt. And there is a disparity in their perception between how well they are doing and how well they are actually doing. And uh, this is true of people in all creative fields. Uh, not everybody. Ken, I think you and I have discussed that uh, we're plagued only by the requisite amount of self-doubt that we need to make things better. And that I we was don't. issued some when I started being a writer, and, you know, I've still got the can. Right. But we don't, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we don't self-flagellate a lot, but other people do, and other people who are really great do. And in extreme cases where it's sort of part of someone's uh, depression or anxiety, it's hard to combat that. But you can always still keep reminding your GM that she's really great. Give feedback. So if a yes. session has gone really well and, you know, don't wait until your GM starts to feel dispirited and funky. But at the end of every if there was a great fight scene, make sure to say so um, and make sure to signal that explicitly, because uh, generally gamers are introverts. Not always the case, but generally. So you may not be signaling your pleasure uh, hard enough. So make sure you're specific about that and say we really loved this uh, this dragon fight. This was great. Uh, we had a fabulous time. Thank you for the great game. Thank you for doing all of that prep, right? Just yeah. Don't be explicit about that. Make sure that your GM feels good about what she's doing before she uh, hits the shoals of, of self-doubt and starts to, to give up. And another good thing about giving specific praise is that it's a way for the GM to take on board, A, what you liked as players, and it's like, oh, they liked that... Um, uh, mass archery combat that I did not think worked very well because I barely understood the mass combat or the archery rules, but everyone thought that that cloud of arrows was really cool. So maybe I can do a couple more of those. Or you, you can say, I liked the, 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 the scene where, um, uh, where, where, with the kissing and you're like, I did not know anyone liked the kissing. I just threw that in as a one-off and maybe we can have more romance in our games and, and less stabbing in the head and see where that takes us. And also it provides evidence that you were paying attention, which in the modern era where phones are more fascinating than people, um, you don't always have that evidence. And people, a lot of times, because we're um, uh, our, 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 our inheritors, the lovely millennials, are trained to multitask from birth. So they're looking at their phone, but they're also listening to the game in a way that elderly fuddy-duddies like myself can't figure out how that works. So if you've been on your phone all game, Something that indicates you were, in fact, paying attention is a lovely uh, soup song of, uh, of glory to the GM. You can say, yeah, that part where that um, uh, that that Sahuagin, uh, I like the accent you did, or I thought that that that, that uh, ambush was really scary and I was worried that my character was going to die and I had to seek solace in, you know, how the Packers were doing. Yeah, if you're good at covertly being on your phone and yeah. obviously paying attention, that's one thing. Uh, if you do other things that signal your inattention, like never pick up a book and start reading it in the middle of a game. <laughs> Except maybe the game book, and that's a ma that's a hard maybe. That's a hard maybe. <laughs> and also to go back just a, a step to uh, things that you can say to your GM at the end of a session to indicate that it has gone well, you can also frame this in ways that suggest that you really want it to continue. Mm -hmm. uh, so it can be, I can't wait to see if Dwalar gets another chance to kiss Jane Seymour. And so there you are indicating, A, that you're paying attention, B, that you are engaged with the narrative, and C, that you are looking forward to see that narrative resolve. So that the uh, if it is mostly a self-doubt issue, the GM now has that, oh, well, I'm kind of feeling like I'm losing it and the, uh, the game is diffuse and everything, but, you know, uh, 
uh, Jane really wants to see uh, if her character gets to kiss Jane Seymour. Uh, okay, fine, that's great. Uh, I better make sure I do that, right? And you're creating a, in a positive way, uh, an expectation of reward and responsibility that hopefully will uh, keep the DM going. Well, we've uh, had a whole bunch of bullet points here. Are there any other uh, main ones that we've left out? I, I guess the only other one that I would I would think of is that if you look around the game and you think that something hasn't happened for a while that you ordinarily like, or even that you know the GM ordinarily likes, see if there's a way that you can engineer it happening as a player. It's like, we haven't had any wilderness encounters for a while. The GM loves doing bear voices. Uh, maybe we should just go into the wilderness and hunt down that uh, outlaw for some money or whatever, and see if you can just literally create a situation that hasn't happened in a while if it's something that you've enjoyed in, in the same way that you can fall into a rut with your you know tv watching or your food or whatever and you're like oh i haven't had mexican food in what seems like forever we should have tacos tonight and that's just you, you know you do that when you order the, the the meal at the beginning of the game if you do that uh so why not also do that at, for the rest of your, of the game and say oh we haven't had a a knockdown drag out bar fight let's start a knockdown drag out bar fight if the story, you know, can take us there, or let's set up a reason to have a knockdown drag out bar fight instead of us just being narcissistic jerks, which is the normal reason a bar fight breaks out in, in D and D. So that, that's maybe something just order, order from a different menu than you normally order from and see if just variety becomes some of the spice of life. And back to the thing I, I put a pin in, which is the issue of if you as a player have identified that the GM is dispirited by the dysfunctional, contributions of another player, I would suggest that you oh so diplomatically uh, broach it with them. And then the player. Uh, well, it depends, right? Yeah. If you are, uh, if your relationship with your player, with the dysfunctional player is stronger than the GM's or stronger than your relationship with the GM, take that player aside and say, you know, have you noticed that the way that you constantly reject the GM's premises is part of why she always gives up partway through? Or, you know, can you maybe dial back the extent to which you uh, need to argue the rules with her? Or, you know, have you noticed that this is really frustrating her? Or the other way around, you know, the other players at the table have also noticed that you're struggling with Jimbo. That maybe, guy. <laughs> maybe it's time, you know, we would all be, you know, we understand the awkwardness of this. But if you want to tell Jimbo that you've moved house... Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll back, back your, your play. play on that. <laughs> we'll help you hide the body. Yeah. Well, I think that's always a good, a good spot to, uh, to end any segment where you're starting to hide bodies, I suspect. Yes. Or maybe it's a good place to begin a different segment, but maybe not a gaming segment. We, dis we disclaim all legal liability <laughs> from any bodies you might hide. Next segment. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure! Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. 
As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse. History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. Once again, it's time for another edition of Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. And we are once more rocketing back in time to our pre-Gen Con hotel room at the beautiful Embassy Suites in uh, downtown Indianapolis. And this time, both Ken and Robin are here to talk to Hal Mangold. Art director extraordinaire and uh, and Patreon backer and uh, my publisher. That's right. As El Jefe of Atomic Overmind Press, I, I am all of those things. Yes. Yes, indeed. And we'll talk royalties after the segment. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Unless the segment gets slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be sure to be interesting then. <laughs> if only I thought of that earlier. <laughs> So as sort of an ongoing series, uh, as uh, we've been able to grab people, we've been talking to people who fulfill different roles in the uh, tabletop role-playing world, and we haven't talked to an art director yet before, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think it's something that a lot of people are attentive to art, and Mm -hmm. sometimes attentive to complaining about art, but don't necessarily know how the process works. So I guess let's start with just the 101 on art directing. You get a new book to work on, let's say Feng Shui 2, to pick an example out of thin air. Randomly chosen. Randomly chosen, totally random. How do you uh, go about uh, the process of uh, assembling the art for it? Well, there are, there, are, there, are two, there are two scenarios that we should talk about, and Feng Shui 2 was, was very definitely the ideal scenario, where um, uh, you are given the text pretty much complete and are then able to lay it out and are able to art direct directly to the text. It's which is, almost as if you're given a document by an avatar of professionalism. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> almost like the, that. <laughs> similar to yeah. hair store brand ingredients. Yeah. To so, professionalism. So, so anyway, in that case, you're actually, and I'm also a, a graphic designer and I do book layouts, so I, I laid out that text and then was able to specifically figure out, you know, have spots where we need a piece here, what is the, the text here, and then we can write descriptions for it. The, the less ideal way, a lot of times, is you're just uh, given text in you know pre pre fully edited or, uh, or developed form, or even before that, right? Sometimes, Sometimes even before art that. Art from an outline. Absolutely, art directed from an outline. That's that can be a nightmare because. Um, but basically what can happen is in the book you want to try and paste the art so it's spread throughout the book and you can sometimes end up where uh, in, with situations if a, a text has not fully been developed or something where stuff gets moved around things like that and you can end up you know with uh, here are about two pieces that are now side by side that shouldn't have been before and things like that um, so anyway those are the two scenarios but they both end up with the same thing where uh, you actually end up with a, a, a list of art descriptions that are sometimes done by the people who have actually written the text and are sometimes done by uh, by the art director himself. I, there's a I do a mix of both. I mean, I'm, I my other company that I work with is Green Ronin Publishing, and I'm I'm very happy to work with a bunch of people there who are very creative, and they can oftentimes just hand me descriptions based on what they have in the text, and that's much easier. Feng Shui was actually I feel very personally attached to it because I did more actual conception of art pieces because I have obviously I've always had a long standing affection for the game itself, so I felt a little more capable of doing it. I was more familiar with the material. So. so um, let, let's just stop right there. Okay. Let's. What, as an art director, is a good, valuable, useful description 
to get or make up or design mm-hmm. versus a one that takes the same amount of space on the screen but uh, wastes your time. What what do you need to see in the art direction notes that you maybe don't see very often or that you always see but you really do need to see it? What's the... Oh, goodness. That, that's a hard question to answer because, I mean, it's certainly the ideal description is clearly expressing what you want the scene to, to or scene or item or whatever illustration to be with enough room for the artist to still move around a little bit. Uh, sometimes you can suffocate an artist with detail. So just sometimes. writing 90, 1947 Coupe de Ville is a perfectly good art description. If, if, if you need a picture of a Coupe de Ville, that is absolutely, it's economical. It's, you know, right. if, if you have a very specific vision in mind. Like for, Coupe de Ville driving towards the reader on fire driven by a monkey. Exactly. Like, like let's use an example from, from a thing that, 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 that I published for you for da- The Day After Ragnarok. Right. When you presented me with The Day After Ragnarok as a, as a game and we talked about the, um, the you know, the, the flying the Trinity device into the serpent, yeah. uh, the, the, one of the early descriptions in the book is a giant serpent eye with a, with a, with a bomber flying into it. And I like had that in my head as soon as I saw that. Mm-hmm. So that was a where you want to be a little bit more detailed. But even right. then, you know, I didn't say to, to I didn't say make sure the bomber is coming in at a forty five degree angle and yeah. blah de blah de blah. Right. You know, I, I described enough for the artist to work with. Just make sure it's a B twenty nine and that the eye is bigger than you thought it was going to. Exactly, be. exactly, yeah. very much so. And um and sometimes it does depend on the artist as well. Like I have some artists I've been working with for a long time that I just know that if I give them the bare bones of what I need. They will flesh out the rest wonderfully, and I don't have to worry about it. And that's the ideal circumstances. You can send someone a note that says Castle Dracula, and you'll get back what everyone didn't know they thought was Castle Dracula until they saw it. Precisely, much like the, the illustration that you guys did for the uh, that was one of the, yeah, the Kickstarter awards. Yeah. Yes, that was a fe- spectacular piece. And again, I wrote the descriptions, but I wrote the sort of little telegraphic things to Cat, and then I don't know Cat actually did all the hard part of wrangling artists and everything. And I don't yes. know if she sent to the artist. Castle Dracula, and he came back with that miraculous piece, mm-hmm. or if she put more into it saying, Castle Dracula, but on um, on this spot at Visaz Gorge with the red lake in the foreground, I don't know how much work she put into it before I got it back, because I, of course, did the minimum. <laughs> the, I think the most important thing in doing an art description is make sure you include all of the the, the things that are absolutely critical to the illustration, but don't Sometimes those can get lost. If you provide too much detail, you can lose the actual <coughs> important things. Right. Like the artist will, will will sometimes have to look at something and go like, well, I can't do all of these details, and they'll pick the incorrect ones. Right. So yeah. make sure you highlight the things. One thing I've seen done uh, before that we haven't done as a style in any company I've worked with, but I've seen it, I think it was used more a little bit more at Wizards of the Coast and some of the other big companies, where at the end of the art description there would be like a list of sort of key terms for the illustration. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be kind of a useful thing, and I might try to start doing that myself in the future. I mean, this is very much a... So key terms like uh, sepia, or what kind uh, of key it, terms are you it, it, it could be something... Silent? Uh, I'm trying to think of the way to do it. Like, uh, some, somebody did it, but it was like, it's, it was just sort of words that were important to the image, you know, like, uh, you know, like, if it was a fight scene, you know, bloody or or bloodless or something right. like that. Just as things that that sort of hit the highlights for the feel of the piece. And, and that would be at the end of the art description, not at the end of the chapter or the end of the book. Uh, yeah, that'd be at the end of the art description. Okay. And you don't necessarily have to do it. It's just something that I found I found interesting when I encountered it. Right, because Wizards and Courage is a very detailed art order, often because we want to describe exactly what the scale armor is like and we want to And also because the sort of hyper realistic, almost symbolist tradition of fantasy art is to do that. I mean, yeah. If we had Matisse drawing D and D books, it wouldn't matter how many descriptors you got. If you get the same sort of loopy Matisse, yes. and not a proper, you know, 
uh, uh, fire breathy, you know, small yeah. dragon. Like, and, and when I worked, so I've worked with art, doing art direction for both Wizards of the Coast now and the couple of books that Green Run and Publishing did for, um, for Out of the Abyss and the Sword Coast Adventurers Guide. And they were very specific about what they wanted. And, and that's because, of course, they have a, a long-standing intellectual property that they are trying to describe. So they're going to be very specific. And there were some stuff we weren't allowed to depict because they kind of hadn't redefined where it was yet, and which is perfectly reasonable. Um, but then working with Warhammer, uh, when we did the same, second edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, that was another case where, uh, where it was just, you know, just it had, things had to look a certain way. Um, and sometimes that certain way wasn't like it always has to look like this. It was like it always has to feel like this. Um, one of the more interesting things I got to do was I got to go and I got to meet with um, John Blanche, who is a sort of a legendary fantasy artist involved with Games Workshop and everything. And um, the, the joke there was, I believe it was, uh, uh, Rick Priestley could tell you what it is. Uh, Alan Merrick could tell you why it was that way, and John Blanche could tell you what it looked like, show you what it looked like. <laughs> um, that was like the, th- the trifecta of the Warhammer world uh, back in back in those old, older times. Um, but it was really interesting because he put together like a mood book for me that was a mix of sort of his work and like crazy stuff from the from the you know the like etchings and, yeah. and really the broad stuff. Yeah, we put together a Pinterest page. Yeah, we, uh, I, I've started doing that a little bit too. We 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 did a little bit of that with um with uh, uh, Feng Shui too, but it turned out that might be necessary because I was pretty much doing... Can, it was me in, in Cam Banks. Right, so and you right. marinated in Hong Kong film, so you know what it was supposed exactly. to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Still from Saving the Soul, this is it. Yeah, it's, exactly. Go. It was very easy to do. So we've uh, so moving past the art order, yes. which uh, interested me because it's the part of art direction that I ever do. Um, now that you've got the art order, either you've developed it or you were given it by the writer, what's stage two? Stage two, well, there's a stage that happens b- before you even get the art order, which <gasps> is gathering the artists. So you want to get your lineup of artists who fit the project. See, I, there you go. Yeah. I already had done it wrong. This uh, there is, you this go. This is why this we're why talking to an art director. Al is in charge. Yes. Yes. So you, need to do, you really should be doing that. They can happen concurrently while the art order is being generated. But pre- ideally, you want to have the artists lined up far in advance, both for their scheduling purposes and for you, so for your sanity, so you won't be covering stuff at the last minute. And sometimes it can be very rushed. Like uh, uh, we were working on the Blue Rose project, uh, which is not, was, did not make Gen Con, unfortunately, due to other circumstances. So, well, I mean, some people had some health, health issues and family stuff. That Turns out this orange monkey attacked the blue deer in the yeah. middle of the forest, and no one knows what happened. <laughs> An orangutan claiming he's king of the Blue Rose. Yeah, thing. I don't know. That's awful. A, it, was, yeah. it was terrible. Um, so, but so for this this project, I have twenty three different artists, and it was. Uh, it was interesting because the, the keystone for that is that the tone of it was um, was uh, Stephanie Law's, Puyman Law's beautiful cover that she did the covers for this original game years ago. So everything sort of had to stylistically sort of refer to that. We're not looking to emulate her style, but it had, you had to look at that cover and then look at the interior art and it had to make sense. They couldn't altogether. clash. Exactly. Like, I wouldn't hi- have hired somebody like, um, uh, just, just as an example, some, somebody we used for Day After Ragnarok again, like Michael Velarde, who's a fantastic artist. His style is utterly and completely wrong for Blue Rose. And that's not a commentary on his skill, it's just how, they, how right. the style works. It's art style. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you, you assemble your team of stuff like that, then you take your, you take your art order, and you uh, basically chop it up, and you decide who gets what. Um, you, you've commissioned artists for a certain amount of work. So you, you issue them an amount of work that fits what you are paying them for and what they're contracted for. And you know who's good at horses and who's good exactly, at guns. Exactly. Like, you know, for instance, on this last project, I had this one artist I'd used, and he was just like, I love drawing weapons. If you ever need somebody to draw weapons, call me. Okay, call, call me. And um, sure enough, uh, he did great work. You know, I, I, he's the weapon dude from now on whenever I need that sort of thing done. So, um, so you know, that, that's, that's the way you do is you break it up and you assign them to them. And usually the artists have, you know, ideally about, about two months was what you'd want, two to three months in a perfect world, which we unfortunately almost never live in. But um, I, I, it is something that I'm really striving to do is get ahead 
you know, uh, as you gentlemen know, being involved in publishing, it's always deadlines versus, you know, when the project has to come out. And, and a lot of times where we are now, Gen Con is that big target that you really have to try and hit because mm-hmm. the, the, the potential to make so much money is uh, on, a, on a, because we're selling direct to consumer is, right. is here. Um, and also, you get uh, you know, it, it's the it turns out to be the season to get eyeballs. Absolutely, okay. yeah, I mean, people who would, in theory, be interested in your game at any time or more interested in your game around Gen Con, whether they're at Gen Con or not, because they're sensitized by their social media and by you know years of expectation to know that the new good game is going to appear in early August. And yeah, you know what it is now, and, and I. I, I there's a term that I almost kind of hate these days, the alpha gamer or whatever, you yeah. know, but basically the people that, that care enough to carve out some time and spend the money to come to Gen Con generally are people that, you know, uh, have a bunch of people back home. So they come to the show, they see stuff, they go back home and tell about it. So To, to flip this uh, yet again, uh-huh. from the point of view of an artist mm-hmm. who wants to uh, please the art director and make her hire him again, mm-hmm. what, what are you looking for? What uh, characterizes somebody who you're going to come to again and again. I mean, obviously, there's a level of technical skill and achievement yeah. and that, you know, hitting their deadline, one assumes. Yes, right? so let's, let's, assume, let's assume the skill. Um, yes, hitting your deadline is very important. Um, communication is almost more important than hitting your deadline. Like, if you are going to be a little bit late, a lot of times, if I have been informed properly, that's not a problem. Because, you know, we plan some time in usually for that sort of thing. I'd say almost more important. Hitting your deadline is most important, but communication is absolutely key. Um, there's nothing worse than our... It's like pleading the murder down to manslaughter. Exactly, exactly. It's like, well, you're late, and yes, You'll that do is, time. Is that terrible? <laughs> You'll do t- a little bit of time, but it'll be a lot less. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so that, you know, just a certain level of professionalism. There, there are, you know, some, sometimes professionalism will even trump skill. Like, I've, I've met some really, really good artists who are absolutely crazy bonkers to work with. They're just not reliable human beings and they are really really good but that you just can't plan with them and and you can't I can't work with them because I have a schedule that I have to keep and they interrupt it so so professionalism is a big one Um, I think reading the art order and giving me what I asked for um, and and not going off on your own little thing um, with an artist like that let's say you've got a guy who's really really skilled but simply mm -hmm. can't be worked with because uh, they're you know a prima donna or they're flaky or they Mm -hmm. have ongoing life issues that make it impossible for them to meet deadlines. Mm-hmm. Is it ever worth it to just keep an eye on their, you know, their DeviantArt page or their portfolio or whatever and then go in and buy their stuff second rights? Is that is freshness more important than quality and thematic fit? I have never done that, but I certainly would be willing to if it was if the artist fit my, with my I mean, piece. I mean, yeah. we're assuming an artist who's really really good who you'd hire a million times anyway, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, I know that he draws a lot of screaming faces. You're doing a game; mm-hmm. it's a horror game. You're like, well, there's probably screaming faces in this horror game. I'm going to buy some of his screaming faces. A- absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's not it's not even a case of of like uh, I don't want to work with you. It's like literally I cannot. No, I, yeah. would, I would like to, but you cannot. You have made this a relationship that cannot go on. But because but I, the art and the text are so closely interwoven, it's very rare that a second use piece is going to match. A hundred percent. Yes, right. that, that, that's a very, very, very true thing. Um, so, uh, so anyway, we, we give the art to the you know the assignment to the artist, and uh, they generally will will turn in some sketches, and uh, uh, there's usually a sketch period. There are I have worked with some artists where I I mean sometimes you need to review more than once, 
a lot of artists like uh, for instance we've done some work with uh, Wayne Reynolds who a lot of people will know from from Pathfinder and and with Wayne generally you just need to see the sketch which will be the sketch will be good enough that you could probably publish it if you were printing in black and white and then he will give you an amazing painting and you he generally gets the subject matter but a lot of times that comes down to hiring hiring him for the right thing too like um, yeah. you know he fits our, our the Green Run and Freeport line to a T yeah he fits D&D style heroic fantasy F20 stuff 100%, 100%. He, he just nails that stuff and you really just you're better off giving him his head and just letting him make something cool for you uh, than, than trying to, to tightly manage somebody like that. Now, what do you think uh, about in a, in a book? If you've got a book that's the creation of one artist or one designer, mm-hmm. you know, even if uh, the, the, the game is designed by one designer, maybe a couple of people wrote like a, the adventure or whatever, but it's a unitary vision pretty mm-hmm. much as a text or as a game. Mm-hmm. Is it useful, helpful, ideal but impossible to have a unitary vision among the art? Or is the art uh, less important than the game design and the words in that respect? And I am loading the question, but I'm loading it. <laughs> I think that you do have to make sure that the art hangs together as a, as a, as a set. You know, yeah. when, when you look at the, at the breadth of the book, now sometimes that can be broader broadened simply by the way you stagger the art. Like, you can actually sort of push the boundaries out beyond what, what the style initially you might think. Mm-hmm. Like, one, you might have two people that if you put their, their work side by side, you'd be like, wow, that doesn't work at all. But if you put them in separate parts of the book with other arts, artists it's who like are different... Cooking. Exactly, it is. Yeah. It's, it's like... Uh, it, it's, uh, or or it, it can be like a movie as well. It can be like, like if you have a love scene, that then immediately everything explodes... That's a little different than if you have a love scene and then stuff that then builds up the tension to then the I thing explodes. I think maybe Mr. Michael Bay might disagree with well, you. Well, <laughs> I think that's accurate. Yes, he probably would. Um, so uh, from the point of view of an emerging artist, you're, mm-hmm. uh, they've got their skill set up to the point where they can credibly come to you with a portfolio that you're not going to just go... But they haven't fully cooked everything in yet. Mm-hmm. What things should they be working on to make art directors more open to booking their work? I would say there are, there are two ways they, they could approach their portfolio. They could either sort of focus on one type of thing, like I am the, the, the scenic you know, background person that does your vistas and stuff like that, um, and just show that you can do that really, really well. But sort of be clear that that's what you're focusing on. Um, and that, or I would say include in your portfolio a diversity of stuff and show that you are flexible and that I could hire you to do in a cool architect type figure standing with no background as well as a, a scenic vista or a fight scene or something like that. And some artists have different strengths. Like, um, you know, I've, I've had some artists that can do great figures and stuff like that, but put them in a scene and they just, you know, it falls apart. They just don't have the chops quite yet to do that. Um, and, and the opposite is, is true as well. Some of those people who do fantastic scenes, you give them one figure, it just doesn't work for some reason. Let's, let's talk briefly about the other part of this, the layout, mm-hmm. because that is, to my mind, uh, again, you know, everyone, uh, there's, there's art you like, there's art you don't like. The mm-hmm. layout, to my mind, is closer to architecture in that there is a clearly, a point at which it just fails. Yes. Right? Architecture fails when the building falls in, no matter how good it looked. Yes. Layout, where do you come down, what are the sort of if you look at a book, and I've seen you do it, you open a book, you look at it, and you, oh, oh why would you, uh, and uh, the, the, perhaps the low barriers to entry with desktop publishing have caused a lot of this, but what's the things that just, if you avoided them, you'd be better than 90% of the people doing layout 
what what are the things that make you say, oh, this is actually something that I should look at a second time? A lot of it, I think a lot of it can come down to, um, this is something really basic, it's just body text. Like, look at an actual published book of high quality, and look at the way they've done their body text, and look at the fonts they've chosen, types of fonts they've chosen, and the, 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 the letting they've done, you know, they've, they've set it on. And a lot of times, just that immediately makes some books look a little... Uh, off and off and, and uh, you know like or, or stuff like a huge indent at the beginning of a paragraph that sort of pokes you in the eye every time you look at text. There's a there's a, a line that Nick Manitas, the, uh, the science fiction writer, horror writer, says, "Hey, small press publishers, if only there was some repository of other successful book covers you could look at to see what a book cover should look like." <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, I, I used to work in the um, in the music retail industry, and uh, like the, the, that's applied also to record to like local band record covers. Like you could somebody could bring a CD in, and you'd just be you know instantly be like, "We are a local band." You know, they may have been called local band, right. you know, local album. Um, and book covers are very much yeah. Anybody can cruise Amazon and see a lot of the self published stuff, and they are it, it, they're not good. And, and and as Nick said, it's like. There are plenty of things to look at that'll show you where you should go. And you can do the same thing with the interior of a, of a role-playing game book or even a, a regular reference book yeah. that's published by grown-up people publishing things. Yeah. I think another thing is um, uh, making your text too large looks uh, look, comes off looking a little cheap a lot of times. It, um, uh, it, you're better off, I think you're better, better off having a shorter product that has you know a text density that looks normal than, uh, than trying to blow something out to... Like, I've seen many, many games that are, are you know... Uh, Twenty pounds of, of, of sand in a, a you know an eighty pound sack, and they've they've spread it out to go in there, and it just it you know I, I think they maybe had a page count in their head they wanted to hit and and inflated the text to do that, but I just don't think it ever looks good. I mean, so do you want to say negative space now, so the people who are waiting for you to say negative space can exhale? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yes, I, I am actually notably uh, not a huge fan of negative space. I'm there trying. You go. I have a, a fraught relationship with it, and I'm striving to embrace it, but my. I was trained well, it's, by. It's so negative, man. It is. It is terribly negative. Well, also, I, I a lot of my graphic initial graphic design experience was uh, working with Matt Forbeck, and Matt hated white space. <laughs> so we usually hunted down and killed a lot of white space in our books back when I was at I was at Pinnacle Entertainment Group in the late nineties, and uh, so I think I, that's a habit I've. I've then again, when I see beautiful books like um, like what's one of the ones uh, like um, The Mountain Witch and, and right. some of these the, yeah. in, the indie the indie games really have just done some fe- spectacular stuff with um, with graphic design um, a lot of that the times that they have the benefit of not having to convey as much technical information um, you know the rules are a little more more story oriented and flow a little bit better and they don't have you know as many tables and graphs and stuff like like Although if you look at games published in Sweden graphic design is just really good there yeah no it is and it's just as niggly piggly as American games you, you, you want to have it, you want a humbling experience uh, uh, lay out a book then give it to the French <laughs> and let them relay it out for you yeah the, the, the relayout of, uh, of Warhammer Fantasy 2nd uh, Edition really made me... Uh, sad's the wrong word, but, you know, they did a much better job than I did. And what specifically did they do that was different? They just did a, they just did a much more modern take. I think it was it came down to more, more where I was in my development as a graphic designer, because I'm, I'm still... I'm pretty... I'm self-taught. Um, I, I, did, I took one uh, graphic design course in college, and we were at... I, I was doing it at the period at which we still learned skills that are will never be useful again. I mean, even or if a dab hand with a paste up. Uh, oh goodness! Uh, I learned how to what's called cutting a mechanical. I mean, it, there's skills that that aren't will not be useful in the future if, t- if society proceeds as it should. In the second Trump administration, yeah, you'll be writing your own ticket. Exactly. But but then again, if society falls apart, they won't be useful then either. Right. So we learned stuff that I is. Don't know, people will want their deportation passes uh, have a graphic impact. <laughs> Font choice is going to be key. Yeah, my goodness, you know, the Trump administration. I've got a I've got a wax paste up machine in my basement just in case. I mean, first of all, all the government documents will be written in Comic Sans. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, it's right next to all the canned food and water. Is, is my my wax paste up machine. Um, but just that the French were, uh, I don't know, the French have always just been really good at graphic design. And I think it came down to a lot of the company, the early companies like, um, I guess Asmodee's been around for a while now, yeah. and, and who are now huge. But back when they were a smaller company, they did, uh, there was a, a magazine called Lotus Noir that looked really, really good. Mm-hmm. And I think they had some people that had some experience in the, the magazine industry and stuff like that. But anyway, they just, they, it's very humbling to have somebody take all of the elements that you use to make a book, take them apart, put them back together, and, and do something much, like, Obviously better, like handing the same ingredients to a class to a French chef. Exactly. Saying, oh wow, my chicken and dumplings suddenly that, that, embarrassed me. Yeah, that, that's a good that's a good uh, analogy. I felt like that was a case where when I gave them the book, I was like, I'm a chef, and that they handed their the result back, and I was like, I'm a short order cook. I'm a cook. <laughs> so I, I've I've gotten a lot better. I mean, that was now um, almost ten years ago. So I've gotten. I think it's fair to say my skills have gotten a little bit better, and I feel better now. And, and I, I have to say, I learned a lot. Like looking at the fr- what the French does, I, seeing what that can be made into is a really valuable So experience. your advice to young graphic designers coming up and young layout guys and uh, layout women coming up, layout people of all genders coming well, up. Layout humans. The layout humans. Yes. All layout humans yes. coming up uh, would be to look at French role-playing games or French textbooks, Swedish role-playing games. Well, I'd say the Where gra- would you say they should be looking to get the, uh, the, the visual sensibility that will tell them uh, this is a little busy. This is a little wrong. This is a little sideways. Certainly, the French are a great place to look, but there are a lot of great American ones now too. I mean, the graphic design standards for for, for games in America have, have elevated overall. Well, should they be even looking at games? Should they be looking at magazines or something? They should, should be, be all looking inside juxtaposed. You should be something. looking at everything. I mean, yeah. it's like it's like game writing, right? You shouldn't just be reading games. You should be reading all kinds of other stuff exactly. so you can bring that to your game. So, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm reading some uh, some uh, books on the history of graphic design now, and it's it's been really interesting. You know, to to read about uh, some of the the poster designs in the earliest part of the century. Stuff, um, you know, and some other guys. Another guys that are really great right now. But one thing that I really admire, I just want to bring this up, is that Secret Hitler game that's coming out. Yes, because that game is just like the design of it is just aces. Like I'm, like I'm envious of that game. But but at the same time, I don't feel it doesn't make me feel like a short order cook. I, I look yeah. at that and be like, that, I'm stealing some of them ideas. You know, I know what they did exactly, and they did they did a real they, they picked a really strong aesthetic and they went with it. And that that's a, you know probably the thing to do. But yes, just look at everything, um, and and. Um, but looking at games specifically is a big deal. Like uh, when I did the cover for, for Feng Shui, or the interior layout for Feng Shui, I took about 20 games that, that I liked out of my collection. Some of them the friends had done, some of them other people, and I just spread them out of my bed, and I opened them up and I looked at them. And I just tried to figure out what I wanted to do. To do. Because one thing that you do is, I think everybody in, you know, you, you know, you get your crutches, right? Your habits. And I think that it's important to try to shake yourself out of some of your habits from time to time. And that, that was a thing that Feng Shui allowed me to do, which was nice. And that's good. I, I think uh, just my response to it is when you're rebooting a property like Feng Shui, mm-hmm. I think it is a really good time to think about changing up your old habits because the easy answer is, well, let's just go back to the 90s Feng Shui design and yeah. future mm-hmm. up a little no, bit. No, no, that, was, that, that was not an option ever. <laughs> no. I know. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> um, so on a concluding note, yeah. is there a font that you really want to use in a book but haven't found the right book to use in a book? Oh, say Futura. <laughs> no, um, you know, not currently. I've managed to work them all. Like the, the last font that I've totally fallen in love with is the font that I used on the cover of Blowing Up the Movies. And I've also used it in like five other places and I just freaking love it for some reason. So I, I don't have any current ones but so, I, what font is that? Because it's now overused by you, and no one else should oh use it. Oh goodness! Uh, oh god, what's it called? Um, you know what? I'm gonna have to look it up. Can you put, can you put it in the show notes for this one? Well, we can put it in the show notes. So check out the show notes, folks, for our mystery font. And thank you so much, Hal, for talking to Ken and or Robert. Absolutely, it was a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you. 
Hey Ken, what happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The smell of movie theater poutine and the hum of federally subsidized cinema projecting tells us once more we've entered the Canadianist of cinema huts, and in this cinema hut, it's the Toronto Canadianist of cinema huts, which means it's not just Canadian, it's global. It's darn international is what it is, because Robin has once more returned, bold pioneer that he is from the Alp that is the Toronto International Film Festival. And Robin, you, as always, go into this enormous ocean liner of film and come out bearing um, uh, gems and idols for our delectation as gamers. And this is no different from other years that you have done that. So I figured we would just run down some of the more gamer positive ones. Yeah. Or do you want to talk about the festival itself? And um, Yeah, let's do a, a quick sort of overall uh, look at the festival. So the film festival uh, screens somewhere between 250 and 300 films every year. And uh, every year there's sort of a different, uh, and there are many different festivals that you can attend. So the titles that I'm talking about here, as longtime listeners will know, are ones that did not have distribution mostly uh, before uh, or while I was scheduling. And I'm looking to find the gems that may never surface again. Uh, those are much less common these days now that, you know, even Nollywood films are available on Netflix. So mm -hmm. compared to uh, this was actually my 30th anniversary with the with TIFF. I, I hope that they gave you a cake. Uh, I think I think cake is the 30th anniversary. And so uh, there is a big high profile festival in which people go to the galas and see the movie stars. Uh, there are opportunities uh, also, which is delightful for our local Korean uh, community to go and see the Korean movie stars and completely lose it, which is a wonderful uh, thing because they're getting much closer to the stars than they uh, would be able to get to if they were still living in Seoul. The big high profile movies this year, I think, uh, bode really well for a fall prestige movie season. Last year, a lot of things came that there were big expectations around and they all sort of died like dogs, except for a couple of ones that then went on to get the Oscars like Spotlight and uh, Room. Uh, but this year, there was big buzz for a lot of different stuff. The documentaries were uh, really well praised. And so, uh, and there was a big list of things that there was a lot of positive buzz about. So films that I didn't see that there were a lot of buzz about uh, uh, included Lion, which has Dev Patel in it. Uh, Denial, which is a, a docudrama about the case in England where uh, someone had to prove 
uh, that the Holocaust happened as part of a libel suit. So it's the, the David Irving story, I think. Uh, that has uh, <laughs> Rebecca Jenkins in it. Uh, there's a film called uh, Moonlight that's about three different stages in the life of a young African-American man that is getting really rapturous uh, praise. So you're going to hear that again. Uh, Jackie, a uh, Jackie Onassis biopic directed by Pablo Lorraine sort of came out of uh, nowhere. And uh, Natalie Portman, who plays Jackie O, is probably going to get uh, Oscar buzz for that. Uh, Kenneth Lonergan's uh, Manchester by the Sea. Everybody loves that. There's a German film called Tony Erdmann uh, to look out for. There's a Western called Brimstone. Uh, Werner Herzog's Volcano documentary, Into the Inferno, which is sort of a sequel to Encounters at the Edge of the World, where he meets a volcanologist. Well, this is a whole movie about him and the volcanologist hanging out with volcanoes. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And La La Land, uh, which is a musical by the director of Whiplash, which has uh, Miles Teller and Emma Stone in it, uh, won the People's Choice Award, and you're probably going to be hearing a lot about that later. So that's the stuff that's uh, going to be coming out soon to take a, keep an eye out for. But uh, Ken, I guess this is the point where you cue me on the more obscure gamer-friendly films that I actually did see. And unusually, usually with uh, your Pinnacle movies, at least one of them is a film that is entirely for grown-ups and only about grown-up concerns, and so we ignore it. But all of these... <laughs> Look. Well, for the best ones, I still insist on talking about them. But yes, all yes. three of these yes. ones, my pinnacle titles, are all of gamer interest. One right. Or another. So let's begin then uh, with your pinnacle of the pinnacle, although I guess that doesn't mean as much in this category, but Soul on a String by Zhang Yang, which is a, um, a, a, a I guess it's technically a Western because Tibet is in the West part of China, but it's an awesome story about uh, sacred stones being carried up into the mountains. And I don't suppose they fight Yeti, but do they fight stuff? There is fighting in this. All right. Uh, definitely. Um, so uh, this is uh, by a Chinese director named uh, Zhang Yang. Uh, he actually directed my favorite, my pinnacle title from 1999, which is called Shower, uh, which is the kind of beautiful grown-up movie that, uh, we, that we, we rightly dismiss. deprecate here. We, uh, but uh, you should check out if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, but this one is very different. So this is uh, about... A, an outlaw who is resurrected by a, uh, a monk drawn back from the Bardo Thodol into his body in order to deliver a sacred stone to a sacred site. And the stylistic comparisons are not only to uh, sort of quiet, beautiful Buddhist movies, but to the westerns of uh, John Ford and Sergio Leone. There's some very specific uh, poses struck during some of the combat uh, scenes that are uh, obviously very much uh, winking to Leone. And the relationship to John Ford, basically, is uh, Ford very famously, in his films, uses Monument Valley as this sort of spatial backdrop in this uh, that gives you a sense of the moral universe and man's relationship to this untamed wilderness. Well, uh, Zhang Yang basically says, John Ford, I will see your Monument Valley, and I will raise you 35 Monument Valleys, because I'm shooting in Tibet. And uh, so shot after shot after shot has this sort of beautiful relationship between the gigantic beauty of nature and the small questing figures in it. And unlike films in which you often hear, well, our, I thought of the landscape really as another character in the movie. Well, often when directors say that, they mean, 
the second unit director got a lot of really great shots, and I left them in too long. Well, that's not the case with Soul on a String. <laughs> uh, that in every case, the one of these shots that you see is they are conveying the meaning of the film. The figures of the narrative are in the landscape. Uh, it goes in different directions. There's a nice little surprise about when when exactly this is set, and uh, it's. Uh, I just found it jaw-droppingly beautiful and held together toward the end. And uh, uh, of course, uh, as you would expect, given the plotline, uh, goes in a very Buddhist direction. And uh, I'm. Uh, I think it's a, a masterpiece. And in a, a day when I'm buying fewer and fewer DVDs. This is one that, if I get the chance, I'll definitely snap up the Blu-ray to this one because it is just a wonder to see visually. Let us then move from the uh, wastelands of beautiful, unspoiled Tibet to the wastelands of quite spoiled France for Daguerreotype. Uh, although the director is not a languid French director, it is instead Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who likes to film ruined things, and I guess he found something in France that was ruined, but not a proper gothic ruin. It, it sounds like it's an industrial ruin. Robin? Right. Um, so his, uh, Kyoshi Kurosawa, he directed my favorite film from 2001 uh, called Pulse, uh, which is basically a world apocalyptic take on uh, the the trope in the ring. Uh, yes, and quite it's often also Cairo in Japanese, if you're Cairo in Japanese. Yeah. Uh, and his films, although they are quite arty, they are often also ghost stories, and they're sort of attention in his work between the more poppy elements and the more arty elements. Uh, this one is also a ghost story. Uh, he usually films in sort of decaying industrial locations in Japan in order to create a sense of uh, documentary realism, because when you see a ghost show up in someone weird and ugly and real, that's scarier. Um, now, he tries to scuff up France as much as he can and uh, <laughs> finds cool ways to do that, but it's still France, and it's with French actors, and uh, so it is both feels like a French film and feels like a Kyoshi Kurosawa film. The plot is basically about a young guy. He goes to work for a famously temperamental photographer who takes gigantic life-size large format daguerreotypes, uh, which requires uh, his subjects, uh, previously his deceased wife, now his daughter, to pose in these elaborate metal armatures that are hidden from view in order to pose for like 90 minutes straight without moving and uh, the uh, ghost of the wife is uh, uh, around his uh, headquarters these may be subjective ghosts you never know with Kiyoshi Kurosawa uh, and uh, the young man sort of disrupts uh, the situation and then is disrupted by it this is a film that I initially after seeing it uh, thought oh this will go in my four to five stars category my recommended category but in the days that followed, the images from it have continued to linger with me. Isn't that and, fun when that happens? Yes. Especially when you see 45 films in a row, basically. Yes, yes. Well, that, that could just be um, uh, some sort of uh, disorder happening. Yes. That, that's a hard test <laughs> yeah. for a great film. If you still even like remember it, much less you can still see particular shots from it in mm -hmm. your head. So while initially I thought, oh, that was very good. That was Kurosawa doing the thing he does, except in France. But I think it's actually more than that and uh, is well worth uh, checking out when that comes out. Uh, he's uh, super prolific. He's also got another film called Creepy uh, this year, which is going to be at the Toronto After Dark Film Fest coming up. So I'm going to have to make sure I see that as well. But uh, Daguerreotype 
uh, is definitely uh, one of my faves. And now you're saying, Ken, how could you have a film that you're more excited about than Tibetan Sergio Leone <laughs> or Pulse in France? And the answer is Anna Lily Amanpour, who made A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, making a post-apocalyptic Western with Keanu Reeves. And the answer is The Bad Batch, although Keanu is a secondary character, which he has taken to in this new stage of his career, and I think taken to quite uh, quite well and wisely. Uh, and the main character is uh, Suki Waterhouse, and there are cannibals, and I will let Robin finish it, but I am just... I am over the moon with excitement about the Bad Batch. Right. Uh, this is a. Uh, I, I must say, this is a divisive film. So, uh, and I think it's going to be an either love it or hate it film. So, I'm going to be very interested to hear your reaction when you uh, do see it. But I have a feeling I know which way you're going to go, <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what it means to be the Bad Batch because there's a bit of misdirection involved in that. But it's a near future world where it's not that the entire world has fallen prey to an apocalypse, but just that the United States has decided that there's an area in Texas that's not going to be Texas anymore. It's just going to be a place where they, an internment camp without any laws and any rules, without any law enforcement from New York there, where they just drop you. And if you're an undesirable, that's where you go. And the conditions, therefore, inside that are post-apocalyptic, including uh, there's one group, the Bridge Tribe, who are engaged in cannibalism. And uh, this is not a giveaway because it happens right away. Our young heroine is immediately captured and her right arm and leg are cut off and eaten. And the rest of the movie is about her response to that. Uh, Jason Momoa <laughs> plays the main people eater, though he's not responsible for eating parts of our particular heroine. And he was, uh, he was, he was out that day. Right. Or, or he, that he, was his cheat day and he was going vegan. Over. It's not that he wouldn't have, it's just <laughs> yes. he happens not to have. Yeah. But he's the main super threatening villain. And the contours of Jason Momoa's body have never, uh, I think, been uh, better exploited on, on film than they are in this. Uh, the film Get is, yourself a lady director who can do both. Yeah. Post-apocalyptic should not mean that you should expect Mad Max. It has Mad Max plot elements, but it is uh, more of a trippy experiential uh, film than an than the revenge drama. It initially revex, uh, misdirects you into thinking you're you're going to get. Yeah, uh, it, it, it sounds a little hills have eyes. Um, but I guess the argument is it's not as much the hills have eyes. It's more using that as the departure to sort of do El Topo or something. Uh, yeah, there's a bit. There's a bit of there's a, a there's obviously a lot of social commentary here. Uh, and uh, <laughs> as you mentioned. Uh, uh, Keanu Reeves is uh, is great in his small role as he's sort of the local potentate of the other community, Comfort, where uh, there is uh, still more civilization, or they rebuilt their version of civilization, and it sort of like uh, initially seems sort of like what if Burning Man was a town, um, <laughs> and uh, he very distinctly looks like Tony Clifton, the uh, sinister lounge singer figure that Andy Kaufman uh, used to do, and uh, there's also an unrecognizable Jim. Carrie in the sort of Gabby Hayes, Walter Brennan kind of uh, kind of role. Well, although the role he was born to play, no doubt. Yes, uh, the character is mute though, so you don't. Uh, the role have... he was definitely born to play. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, it's trippy, it's surprising, it takes you somewhere uh, that you're uh, not necessarily expecting to go. Uh, and if you go in expecting it to be Mad Max, I think that's part of why the people uh, who don't like it don't like it. Or there's some sequences that are just super shocking and upsetting uh, because cannibalism. And this was my very last film of the entire Fast. I was thinking, oh, well, it's it's a little bit of a down year. 
uh, I'm getting a lot of duds. Well, actually, I wound up having fewer duds. They were just sort of, I successfully scheduled them at the front of the 10 days, which is where you want them. That's where and you want them. My very last film of the whole festival was my final five out of five pinnacle title, The Bad Batch. So uh, check uh, your cinemas for that when it comes out. And uh, unless you are easily upset by things that happen on screen, in which case, don't go see it. But Ken, <laughs> I know you're going to go see it. Oh, you know it. We now leave the peak of the Canadian slash Tibetan French Texan glacier and move downward through the Valley of Commercials before we return to Toronto in the exciting sequel. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. Now, I know we promised not to talk about grown-up things at the beginning of this uh, the previous segment, but I want to talk about this grown-up thing because it's a grown-up thing. it's about thing. architecture. Exactly. It's about the only grown-up thing, the mother of the arts, as they say. If you can't do architecture, all your other arts are crushed under falling roofs. So uh, this one is Citizen Jane, Battle for the City, a documentary about uh, Jane Jacobs battling the uh, hateful monster that is Robert Moses. And if you haven't read... Uh, Robert Caro's biography of Robert Moses <laughs> and are not feeling depressed enough about how politics works, I urge you to do so. <laughs> yes, and right and left can team up to yes. uh, equally despise Robert Moses in that Woodrow Wilson sort of way. He's, he's one of those people that we can all agree deserves a good thumping. Um, unless you are one of those people who are like excited about brutalism and expressways knocking down hundred year old neighborhoods, in which case, Please keep this opinion to yourself. Or you're building uh, in China today or many other places that are... Also keep your opinion to yourself. have adopted the Robert Moses playbook. Yes, or Japan, which is Robert Moses the video game. Anyhow, enough slagging off on our friends overseas. Let us slag off on good old Robert Moses, or rather, let us praise this documentary. Robin, tell us why you love this documentary so very much. So uh, this is called uh, Citizen Jane, Battle for the City. The director is named Matt Tiernauer, and this is a... Basic, here's a bunch of information uh, documentary with archival footage and talking heads and narrators doing bits of text that they don't have audio, uh, archival audio for. So theoretically should not be transcendent because that's just a basic standard format documentary. Straight up Ken Burns, right? Uh, but this is, I guess there's, this is now a tradition too, that there's a documentary that I uh, react to disproportionately. Uh, this, the last year it was Hitchcock Truffaut, and for me it was uh, Citizen Jane, Battle for the City. And as you said, it's about the battle between uh, the uh, deserving uh, underdog and the overweening uh, overdog, Robert, Robert Moses, who wanted to build expressways through 
uh, New York City, and he's basically the mastermind of the housing project. And he took Corbusier's ideas and inverted them. Uh, Corbusier wanted to have big office towers where people worked, but they would then be surrounded by livable seven-story uh, housing uh, units like you see in Scandinavia. But Moses, in uh, the pockets of various developers, uh, knew that it was cheaper to create those giant concrete towers that basically destroy every element of urban life that Jane Jacobs, uh, who started out as a uh, freelance journalist for uh, Vogue magazine, of all things, and wrote about events on the street. And she was the one who basically developed modern urbanism as a journalist, observing what happens in cities and what makes them vibrant and alive and what kills them. And what kills them is what Robert Moses was trying it to do. Is listening to professors of urban studies. Uh, yes. Well, <laughs> that's today's what kills professors them. of urban studies, many of them, you know, follow the gospel of, of Jane Jacobs. And in Toronto, uh, you know, she's but a never, None singer. of them have ever filed a story for Vogue. I'll point that out. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah. Communicating clearly. I mean, it, also, if you are identified with the protest left, see this movie to see how brilliantly she organized her campaign against the expressway that he was trying to put through the West Village and see how it is focused on changing people's minds <laughs> and how brilliantly it does that. And uh, the documentary is its not just great because it has a powerful uh, conflict that is personified by two powerful figures. It is also just magisterially done. A lot of that has to do with the score. Uh, but there's also the choice of the archival footage. Somewhat uh, delightfully for genre fans, uh, when they need someone to read text written by Jane Jacobs, they use Marissa Tomei. And for Robert Moses, they use the voice of another terrifying New York real estate developer, the Kingpin. They use Vincent yes. D'Onofrio. <laughs> so, so yeah, Citizen uh, Jane Battle for the City was is... Uh, uh, I hesitated to put it in Pinnacle because I know that my feelings about what is happening in Toronto, where we have this strange inverse situation where the condo developments are basically, you know, they're the Cabrini green for rich people. <laughs> These giant glass condos that are going up that also seem to be ignoring a lot of what uh, uh, Jane Jacobs was saying about what makes for vibrant street culture. It's, so, not, it's not who that's in the tower that's the problem, although exactly. it can be. It's the actual fact of building an ugly international style tower. Anyway, um, you and I have agreed, and we've also talked way too long, probably, about this wonderful documentary, which, again, I need to see. So I'm going to move us forcibly back out onto the glacier for a movie that I personally cannot wait to go see, which is to say Inuit the Searchers, Maliglutit, right? Maliglutit? Uh, Maliglutit, I think. Well, uh, neither of us speaks Inuk, so... Uh, yeah, so this is an Inuit remake of The Searchers. Yeah. Um, it's uh, by uh, Zacharias Kanuk, who did uh, the film Atronajurat, The Fast Runner, that you may know from 2001. Also a beautiful film from uh, the Inuit point of view, uh, depicting the Inuit uh, lifestyle. Here, uh, the film is shorter. The film is way beautifuler because it's shot on film. And uh, it also uses the landscape in the way that John Ford, or perhaps we would now say uh, Zhang Yang do. And it's a stripped down version of the story. The uh, bad guys are not from an alien uh, culture. So you don't have that whole element of tracking down the person in order to kill them because they've been polluted. It's just the, our hero uh, is trying to get his uh, wife and daughter back from uh, the uh, outlaws, from the bad guys. They're uh, 
They're murderers because they don't share food, so they get uh, kicked out of their community. And, uh, you know, what happens when you kick people out of the community? Well, they come back as even worse outlaws. They turn to to be bad people. Kidnap women. And so uh, it's a a really fabulous return for uh, Kunuk and uh, one that's well worth seeing. So uh, in the course of the festival, I saw uh, an eastern, uh, southern, and a northern. And this is the northern. This is the northern. Okay. Um, now we're going to move on to another movie that perhaps might skirt the boundaries of being grown up, but because it is, it sounds magnificent, I'm going to talk about it. Uh, Neruda uh, by Pablo Lorraine, the other movie by Pablo Lorraine, not the one with Natalie Portman, which you think would be the one that I would want to talk year. about. But this is about a secret policeman in a magical realist manhunt for Pablo Neruda, and you had me at Secret Policeman and Magical... Uh, you had me at the capsule description, Rob, and that's what yes, I'm trying to that's, say. that's the point of the capsule description. So, yes, right. this is... Uh, it solves the biopic problem, as most bio- successful biopics pro- do, by A, focusing on one particular incident in the life of its main character that then is able to suggest the rest of his life. And so, uh, this is about the famed, revered poet, who was also a senator in 1947, when the uh, government that he supported and helped to elect turned on the communists and put them all in internment camps. And this is about his escape. Uh, eventually, uh, at first he tries to live underground in Chile. He does not want to go to the internment camp, which is uh, run by an ambitious young man named Augusto Pinochet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, eventually he has to escape. And the his hunter, uh, played by Gail Garcia Bernal, is a figure of perhaps uh, magic realist dimensions because, of course, this is Chile, it's uh, South America, and, uh, and you're the film which is shot in these. Uh, it's really beautifully shot, but shot to look like a photograph that's faded in the sun. So there's lots of blues and purples, and uh, it's just a, a really great uh, treatment of its uh, its subject matter, and well worth seeing when it comes out. All right, we are now skipping a whole bunch of grown up movies, and we urge you to go to Robin's uh, w- website where. He lists them all. There will be a link in the show notes, but we're going to go all the way down to Anne Hathaway and Kaiju. And if those are two great tastes that taste great together, imagine how great they are when directed by Nacho Vigalondo, who is one of my favorite directors. And I can't wait to find out what the hell is going on with Colossal. Robin, tell I'm us what the hell. I'm not tell you totally what's going on with it, because this is one of those people just know to go see it. Uh, but don't read the reviews because it will have to, they will necessarily have to give away they too will much ruin of the plot. It. But Anne Hathaway is uh, a uh, woman who she sort of bottoms out and goes back to her small town. She has a bit of a drinking problem, and she goes back to uh, the town where she grew up, and she re- rekindles her friendship with her schoolyard chum played by Jason Sudeikis. Uh, things get a little weird after a while, and they get super weird because it turns out that a kaiju monster and later a giant robot are attacking the city of Seoul halfway across the world. And her actions in her small town have something to do with that. And so uh, Nacho Vigolando is doing his usual thing of taking a popular genre and then radically reorienting it as a different genre. So it's a kaiju rom-com or is it? Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I don't want to say too much about that. There is one uh, movie, Ken, that you uh, skipped over that you at least will want to check out. And that uh, very briefly is Godspeed by a director named Chung Mong Hong, who directed another film that we both loved called Soul a couple of years ago. Right. Uh, and so that's about uh, a drug courier 
who uh, winds up uh, hiring an older taxi driver to take him to a drug deal. This is uh, not as style forward as uh, Soul, but uh, has that same sort of uh, Buddhist enigma behind it. So that's one that uh, you will definitely want to check out. All right. Well, when we're talking about Asian films that I want to check out, we naturally say, haven't we said the word Korea enough yet? And the answer is no. Uh, Asura, The City of Madness, directed by Sung Soo Kim, is a Korean noir, and if that has not already sold you on it, Robin, sell them on it. Yeah, so the thing about Korean noir is that it's uh, it's like noir, but it's really dark. Yeah, it's <laughs> much like <laughs> Korean spy movies are like spy movies, but they're like really, really exciting. Dark. Or um, uh, Korean thrillers are like uh, thrillers, but more thrilling. Similarly. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> this uh, typical noir is about uh, one person who uh, commits a transgression in the course of the early in the narrative and then realizes that there's no escape from paying for it. Here, all four of the major characters are already deep into their transgressions by the time the story uh, opens. Uh, the main figure is a crooked cop who works for a maniacal mayor who uh, uh, makes Rob Ford look like a piker. And also there's a, a prosecutor and his cop who's assisting him and they come into conflict and uh, let's say a lot of blood gets shed. <laughs> uh, so, well, thank goodness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and this is uh, by the director of Musa the Warrior, uh, and is uh, uh, given its previously described uh, ultra darkness, uh, also uh, really excellent. We have a brief break again for grown up talk, so uh, refresh your beverages now. But there is a Saudi Arabian rom com, which I suspect is prison sensible in Saudi Arabia to even make a rom-com. So what's the story with Mahmoud Sabah's Baraka meets Baraka, Robin? And by grown-up, we don't mean heavy going. This is a delightful, funny rom-com with uh, uh, two appealing leads and uh, a cast of contrasting characters who supply a lot of comic energy. But one of the problems with the contemporary rom-com in Hollywood is society doesn't have obstacles in the way of people right. who love each other getting together anymore. It's not like Jane Austen times. No. But guess what? Saudi Arabia. It's worse than Jane Austen is, times. They, they live in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> They're in Riyadh. Uh, and so, uh, and, and it explicitly becomes a critique of the way that uh, the parameters of ordinary life have deliberately been narrowed by the government. Uh, as of the 79 until now. And, uh, you know, there, it, it's not, it's using that popular form to express that very important idea. So, uh, ironically, uh, the, uh, film that is most likely to get its filmmaker in trouble, uh, uh with the, at least with the religious police, who are the big obstacle to the two characters ever being able to meet in public, is a rom-com. Um, we return you now to uh, the exciting world of South Korea, where uh, we have a spy thriller. Is that what it is, the net? Thriller, it's a spy drama. So this is spy Kim drama. ki okay. who uh, works in more of an art house frame, often makes extremely disturbing films. He did Time, right? He did Time and mm -hmm. uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, Pieta a couple of years ago, which is, uh, uh, speaking of exceptionally dark uh, noir, um, this is a... Uh, but it does follow the Korean spy thriller trope of nothing good ever comes of crossing the border from north to south. But once you've done that, you're, you're screwed with everybody. And so it's just a, a straightforward drama about what happens to a fisherman who his boat starts to uh, drift from one part of the river over to the other and crosses the border because he gets his net stuck in his motor. And the, it took him 10 years to save up for that uh, little dinky rowboat, so he can't let it go. And so he mm -hmm. goes over to the other side. And then, so then he's interrogated first by the South Koreans. 
and then when they finally release him, by the North Koreans. And yes. so it is a realistic take on the usual more genre-fied trope, and well worth seeing if you care about uh, Korea and its politics. Uh, or even if you care about great film that is a spy drama. Yes. We move rapidly south to Indonesia, which has uh, sneakily become the home of some really good action films, and the face of Indonesian action, Iko Uwais of The Raid, is in this one, Headshot, directed by Timo Tajanto and Kimo Stambal. And also tell us known about as the Headshot. Mo Brothers, if you find that easier Thank to remember. goodness they have a name. <laughs> that was going to get very long. The Mo Brothers directed Headshot. What do we know about that? If you remember the raid, uh, you know crunching hard action. This is full of crunching hard action, uh, but it is also more kind of a cartoony genre film in which the various uh, uh, antagonists uh, have cool action uh, gimmicks and stuff. And basically the, the plot line, such as it is, because uh, <laughs> you don't want a lot of plot getting in with this story, uh, is that our young hero wakes up in a hospital bed with bullet fragment in his brain, prevents him from remembering how he became so battle-scarred. But guess what? The people who did that to him do remember, and they come after him, and it turns out that he has to uh, fight this sort of father figure who stole a bunch of kids when they were uh, prepubescent, made them fight it out to the death, and the ones who survived are all of his uber-henchmen. And so our hero must fight his way through all of these henchmen to rescue his charming uh, doctor and uh, finally uh, come to brutal physical terms with the man who did all of that to him. So it's a series of crunching, uh, stylized fights. There's some great prop uh, use, uh, particularly in there's a fight in a police station where he has to fight one of the super henchmen and then another one. You'll never look at a typewriter or a paper cutter the, the same way again. Uh, <laughs> there's a really... The, the way they do auto fire is uh, is really innovative, and of course this is the range of innovation you, you're looking for in a martial arts film. Uh, so uh, for your hard action film, uh, you know, with the subtitles for this fest, it's definitely headshot. So if you're looking for a lot of uh, some high quality side scrolling uh, Marantau Silot, that's what you got. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to go back to Korea for the Age of Shadows, because not only is it Korea, but it was directed by the guy who did The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, which was a great Leone riff. And this is a more of a Hitchcock riff, it looks like. So th this is another spy drama, and it's set like Assassination, the film we both uh, so loved uh, from last year, in the uh, during the Japanese occupation of Korea. So it's a 30-set spy thriller. So again, Ken and I are signed up for that. There's even a little chunk of it that happens in Shanghai, uh, if you needed any more reason to see this. Um, and there's a big midsection on a train where it's sort of Hitchcockian spy suspense. So if you know Hitchcock spy movies, it's sort of in that territory. Uh, there's, but there's also big set-piece action sequences. And it's about a, a motivationally ambiguous uh, collaborator, a, a Korean police captain, and which side he's going to finally uh, wind up uh, falling uh, across. And... If you want to see this movie, it will be in theaters at the end of this month. It may even be out by the time this podcast drops. So if you're Ooh. in a city where you're lucky enough that uh, when you have a cineplex that sometimes shows uh, the Korean films that are now getting uh, shown in cities that have a Korean population. So maybe a trip to Niles is in my future. A trip to Niles may be in your future. I think you'll dig this one. Okay. Uh, we are skipping some more uh, uh, grown-up movies, even some grown-up crime movies, because Robin saw 45 damn movies this year. Uh, which is, I don't know if that's high for you, but it sounds nope, that's high. that's the number. That's, that's the number? Okay. It means I didn't sleep through any, like I 
I went to all of them, but <laughs> right. Okay. Um, uh, well, let's talk about your Southern real rapidly. That's guilty men. I'm assuming by Yvonne yeah. D. Gauna in Colombia. And it is, uh, if so, if you've been watching narcos, you know, that that is, that country is basically one, uh, lens away from a Western at any moment. And this one does what, uh, this one is basically, so what happens when the paramilitaries, uh, are supposedly shut down, but the guys who run the paramilitaries, you don't know who they are because they wear motorcycle helmets when they go around shooting people in your community. You've got the big money from the last payoff you were supposed to give them, and now they've been demobilized. Do you keep the money? Do you try and track them down and give them the money? If you're a group of people in a small, poor community and some of you uh, need money more than others, what happens? And that's uh, that's all you need for a sort of a, a bit of uh, Anthony Mann-style uh, uh, West a Western modern contemporary or, you know, a generation ago contemporary action in uh, Colombia. So it's a Colombian Western with hats and everything. And this is, um, I don't know if this is the best news because drunken Anne Hathaway and Kaiju is probably the best news anyone could ever have. But it was really good news to me that the ring versus the grudge, or as they call it, Sadako versus Kayako was actually good because I saw that it was going to happen. And I remember feeling a sense of resignation pressing down on yes. my chest saying, well, I guess I'll have to watch it. As did everyone. And it turned out Koji Shirashi, who is, I guess, more of a comedy director, but he's got a comedy horror tone to him. So this indeed is a, a crossover between The Ring and The Grudge. And it's basically if you were to sit down uh, and with your friends who are all J-horror fans and make a list of what you would want to see if this movie had to exist, which apparently it does, well, this is kind of it. So <laughs> it's uh, a knowing, inventive uh, sort of riff on both series that feels like the original. It is has more of a comic tone, so there's a bit more Sam Raimi in it, uh, uh, certainly than The Grudge would ever have. And, and the, Ring is, uh, the Ring has always been a little campier. In fact, the one that's more serious in tone is the U.S. remake. Which yeah, which is one of the reasons it worked better. Yeah, I mean, not better than The Ring, but better than U.S. remakes of J-Horror. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> at the risk of breaking into another segment, I actually like the American Ring a little more than the uh, Japanese one. But well, that sounds like a lovely topic for a f different day entirely. Indeed. Uh, but uh, if you know those films, uh, this is a uh, successful mashup of those two things with uh, fun in mind. because And the premise is basically that our exorcist character knows that uh, there's one girl who's been uh, cursed because she's uh, watched the uh, dreaded VHS tape, and another one has cursed because she's gone into the grudge house. Well, if you have each of them that go into the grudge house and the one who hasn't seen the tape then watch it, well, obviously, Sadako and Kayako will have to fight in order to decide which one gets to destroy them. And nothing could possibly go wrong with that idea. That's the best plan ever. Yes. Um, there are a couple of other things even further down in the land of good, and I would even suspect in the land of okay that I want to see if it happens, but we will make you go to Robin's blog and give him some much-loved hit traffic to read all about the other movies he saw, because we must leave this segment and perforce this podcast. Right. Uh, and when you leave this podcast and later go to Chicago, I bet you'll see some of those other films and you might like them better than I did. So we can talk about them then. That would be a lovely thing were it to happen from your lips to the, the cinema gods ears to, to, to Brian Kutz's ears. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've, we've done another podcast, man. Yes. Talk to you next week.
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>